Hi everybody, welcome to Stress for Lunch. I'm your host, Bill Whittle, and a uh, special day here. Uh, we, we like to do uh, fun things for the people that are able to kind of get in live, and so um, I know it sounds like a bit of a tease, but that's kind of what show business is all about. Uh, we just took a look at the, um, the dress rehearsal um, uh, uh, for um, Dia's for Dungeon. It's 97% finished. A couple of little sound cues still need to go in. But the whole story is there from start to finish, and um, uh, it's uh, it's a lot of work. Um, so uh, you know, we uh, we got a lot of, of things to talk about, a lot of things to do. We're going to go to questions and stuff, but we did just see this thing, and uh, and I I got to tell you. Um, uh, well, of course, the criticism's coming in now, too, so we got to fix this, and I didn't like that, and this was no good, and you had to do this, change this, and I don't this, and that's another two months' worth of work, so I'm not going to do that. Um, anyway, uh, it's, um, <laughs> I didn't count the shots. I think it's, oh, I think it's over 200, um, and uh, it looks like a movie. It was uh, 14 minutes long, and um, now the whole story um, has, uh, you know, some, some real meaning. Lots of good beats in there, and again, there's a couple of quick, um, a couple of quick audio bites there to, to do that. Um, so, um, yeah, so now people are saying I should uh, not have uh, named the, the Castle Democratic Party headquarters and fix that will take me another two months, so I'm not going to fix it, and that's the way it is. Um, so anyway, uh, that was that, uh, the, um, I don't know if Zoe is watching, if he is, he, he said he would be, uh, so for those of you who are, um, who, who saw the thing live, uh, I suspect Zoe's watching the comment stream, he said he would earlier today when we, um, when we recorded, uh, the Virtue Signal, so, um, if you got something good to say to him, It'd be nice to say it in front of him instead of in front of me, because for the last four months I've heard nothing but Zoe's a great actor. Yeah, what a great voice he has. Zoe's amazing. He's amazing. Good after sitting here going, yeah. But in any event, um, a lot of people asked how because uh, again the live crowd. I know this is frustrating for uh, for those of you um, watching on YouTube, but. Uh, we we've run it live a couple times and and uh, for the first time, um, I feel like uh, you know it was pretty much there. I, I actually my my voice is uh, much better than it, than it was on on this recording. I decided to warm up my voice just for the hell of it, you know, uh, you know just because I'm a professional speaker. It occurred to me maybe I might might want to you know warm up my voice a little bit. Um, and here comes all the reasons why I need to tear the ending of the thing down and do it again. I guess sometimes I just want to go dig a hole, jump in it, and then pull the dirt on top of me. Anyway, um, I think it. I think it looks good, and um, I'm very happy with it. So let's um, let's go ahead and take some questions. Uh, we'll go to Facebook first this time, I think. I have to refresh this page. 
Um, where did I go? Oh, Facebook. Okay, so we actually did two um, two different posts here, so we'll see if we can get to both of them. We did one yesterday saying we're going to go on Friday. Uh, CJ Rachel says, got my Twitch account set up, ready to hang out in the lounge. I hope you're here now, uh, Rachel. Good to see you, hopefully, if you're here live. Uh, Graham Godfrey says, uh, listen to the micro podcast. You're doing well or excellent, but then I might be a fan. Thank you, um, Graham. I got a lot of good feedback from the, the micro show. Uh, we have really uh, good chemistry, and, and, um, and he's just a you know he's just a fine fellow he's he's pretty much exactly uh, like he uh, like you would think he would be um looks like zo just uh, texted me and said he's having some bad internet problems so what i'll do is i'll send him a copy of the file and he can he's out in some place with not not great internet so i'll um i'll uh send you the file there zo you can watch it in full 1080p 24 frames per second you know, glory. It's it. It looks really good. Um, so uh, yeah. So Mike Rowe and I had a a, a lot of fun, and um, I don't know. It's just something about uh, the, the two of us here. We just agree on uh, on a lot of things. A lot of it has to do with um, respect. You know, um, just the amount of respect you have for a, a person who's who's that you know talented, that famous, that you know good looking. It must have been a crazy big thrill for him, and uh, and I thought it was kind of fun too. Um, so uh, thank you for that, and um, and then finally, um, I, I have been uh, I have been uh, not even underwater is not a I have been underground in a cave for the last three weeks, four weeks working on this, and and I just cannot tell you how much work it is. So um, I didn't have a chance to link to the fact that uh, our friend uh, uh, Dictor Van Doomcock, the future ruler of Earth, finally, after about three months, posted uh, the um, the uh, interview we did on Star Trek. He said it's really good, and I'm going to um, send a link to that uh, probably tomorrow. We'll see what happens um, with, uh, with that. So yeah, spreading it around a little bit. Um, and back to Facebook. Let's see what we got here. Uh, watching it on Twitch. Yeah, Dante's Inferno is right. The fire is great. Uh, okay, here's one from uh, from Dave Olson. Uh, some people talk about Elon Musk as a Bond villain, and we reply with, yeah, but he's our Bond villain. But what if he's really up to something? Every Tesla has cameras on the front, rear, and sides, and Starlink satellites have decent capabilities have decent optical capabilities, so he's running the largest private surveillance firm in history. So is he good, evil, neither, or just misunderstood? Um, I don't I don't know what's going on inside Elon Musk's, Musk said. I know this though. Uh, having watched um, having watched his uh, his political evolution over the course of the last two months, really since he made the offer to start with, with Twitter. He's becoming more and more openly conservative every day, and that means that he's st suddenly starting to think about things that he probably hadn't either thought about too much or that he was uh, basically just going with what he'd heard. So 
Yes, he has a he has a series of tools. He's the richest man in the world. The richest man in the in the world um, has always got a, a lot of power. And generally speaking, the things that um, that make you one of the richest people in the world are the things that also make you a little self centric and power hungry. Um, but the thing that Elon Musk has, and I I can't describe it anything else, is he's got a sense of humor. He's got a sense of humor about himself, and that to me is a certain sign of somebody who is at least not pathologically narcissistic. Uh, the ability to laugh at yourself is, is something that genuine narcissists just can't do. I, I cannot imagine Barack Obama making a joke about himself unless he was on camera making a joke about it, smiling, you know, and showing everybody he's making a joke about himself. All of them. They're, they're just very, very, very... Um, unemotional uh, and you would think that you'd want your bond villains to be um, emotional but now I think no I think it's the unemotional people that are the ones that are the real problems the ones who just calculate everything as numbers and you know throw 50,000 people over here or we have we may have to displace this population you know that kind of thing uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, over the years and I hope Elon's learning it too is the um, is really the uh, not just the value of the individual, but the essence of it, right? You know, it's you can say, oh, well, we did this and we and we displaced, you know, fifty thousand people and so on. Well, those are fifty thousand people, and they're people just like you and me. And history is all about the big names. I don't, I don't buy for a second this uh, left wing idea that history is written by the you know unnamed and that the that the great names are just along for the ride. I don't believe that at all. Um, but, uh, just as an example, when they, um, in, in Henry V, when they list the English casualties, he says the Duke of Warwick, I think, Earl of, uh, is it Exeter? No, it's something like that. Anyway, two, two, and, and then, you know, a number of, uh, faceless, nameless, you know, um, peons, peasants, but those people have family lives too. And that is the thing that I think is the, the heart of the disease that we're facing with these guys, all of them, with all the tech giants, is this sense of unbelievable narcissism, this complete sense that they are the only ones that really understand an issue and that regular people are too stupid to, um, to do, uh, you know, what's good for them and so on. And so they, you know, they do what, they do what, people on the left always do and what I used to do when I was when I was there you you find a little storyline that kind of soothes your conscience and then you run with that um, so you know the they they believe that they're doing it for the greater good that's what they say I don't know whether they actually believe it or not but I suspect on some level they they buy into it because um, because you know of that um, whoa hang on I missed something important there Okay. Um, so um, it's just this contempt for people. Somebody asked before the show what I thought of the new season of uh, Love, Death, and Robots, and I've seen um, most of them by now. And I think they're just really badly done. I think uh, Natasha 
got it right. You know, the first set was like, you'd see things that were like a lot of gore or, or, or something, and it was shocking uh, because it was a fresh thing and it was part of the story. It seems to me that second season and now third season, you've got it, it just very formulaic. And, and I, just, I just think they're just not good at all, at all. And there's a there's one with the three robots, which I think was the very first episode of the first season. And it's just a it's just a, a woke lecture, you know. It's just it's just a bam 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 bam. Um, it's uh, it's just really really disappointing. Um, Wazer said I only like two episodes on this season. I I agree, probably like the same two. Um, you know they got they've got these wonderful. Um, Wonderful! Uh, oh, there's that dude Zo. Hey, Zo's in the house. Um, uh, visual effects, and as usual now, they're, they've fallen. You know, it struck me that Love, Death, and Robots in the beginning. I thought I don't know how how it came about, but my my impulse was that it was a bunch of individual the, uh, little studios, uh, not as little as my studio, but little studios, and um, and they were. And they had a cool idea, and then they basically just bundled them together and, and, and made a, a series out of it. And then it was a big success, and, and then the second one seemed to be kind of, you know, trying to copy the first ones. And this season just seems like, you know, oh, here's another uh, cracker that we can put our, um, we can spread our delicious um, uh, woke message over uh, to get inside of uh, people. I'll tell you one thing that, that everyone I've seen so far um, of the third season, virtually all of them, in fact, is just how it's not just anti-American or you know anti-conservative, how anti-human it all is. All of it, all movies, the science fiction especially. I, I mean, it's just such a cliche. It's just so boring, you know. It's just so boring. It's like oh, humans have destroyed the Earth, so we have to go and live on Io. <laughs> You can, you could, you could do whatever you wanted to do to the earth, and it would still be an easier place to live than anywhere else that we're aware of. But it's like all the time we have to leave the earth because we've destroyed it. Okay. Um, and and then it's like, oh well, we're gonna go out into the stars and we're gonna, you know, and we're gonna just bring war and we're gonna bring all this other stuff that you know, and we're just we went we just run just this whole thing is just about how bad people are, how bad they are. And um, how greedy they are, and, and so on. There's a line, not just a line. There's like a whole lecture in uh, in the third uh, three robots thing in the third season, where they they are looking at you know the Earth is all the humans have been extermin have died off basically, and you start off in a in like a an armed it's a survivalist camp, and you know you see these redneck hats. Somebody's got a, a hat that says I I lubricate my gun with liberal tears or something well they've all died out you see they were so stupid and and this is essentially this is what they're saying verbatim they're all kind of lower class people not very smart you know and i guess the guns didn't save them save them from what didn't tell us they had another one where it was out on a on a like a kind of like an oil platform where millionaires were and um and they all died because they overfished the oceans and there were too much plastics in the ocean so they couldn't find any more food so they all died and then they finally found the one where the billionaires are, and it's just nothing but barbed wire, and on the other side of the barbed wire are a bunch of starships. No question what they are, they're starships. And then these three robots are basically saying, you know, 
Now, this is like pretty much a direct quote. I don't know. Doesn't seem to make sense to me spending all that money to go to Mars when they could have used that money to help heal the Earth. Piss off. You know, seriously, just go piss off. I am so sick of these small-minded, tiny, tiny little brains all on the same little chip, all basically saying, oh, well, we're going to be... I saw some... some um, uh, I guess it was... The, the, like They looked like they were... I don't know, maybe 15, 16-year-old girls. Was it confronting Diane Feinstein, maybe? And, um, and they're saying, we only have 10 years. In 10 years, the planet's going to be dead. It's like, are you, are you out of your mind? But they believe it. They believe it. I've said this before. I've, I've said it specifically about Greta, whatever her name is. I, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to foresee how disappointed she's going to be when we all don't drown or burn. Thurnberg, yeah. I'm really, I think she's going to be heartbroken. I suspect it'll probably happen in her early to mid-20s. Um, and they're going to, they're going to look around and it'll be 2030, 2035, and five years past the Earth is going to die deadline. And they're just going to be looking around. They're going to be saying, well, things pretty much look the way they did before. Uh, all the beachfront houses are not underwater. There's not water running through the streets of New York City. Uh, the planet didn't burn. The planet didn't drown. The planet didn't, didn't choke. The planet didn't do anything. The planet did what the planet will do, which is find equilibrium. There is a enormously powerful, enor un unimaginably complex negative feedback loop in the Earth's atmosphere. In other words, once temperatures start going in one direction, things happen that bring the temperature back in the other direction. It goes too far in the other way, other things happen. Or those original things don't happen, and then it goes back again. But they just, you know, they just, they absolutely believe it. And that, I'll tell you something, it's kind of a, a thing... Uh, yeah, Al Gore said we have 10 years to save the Earth. Was that 2002 or five, 2005, I think it was? Um, well, I guess the Earth didn't get the memo. Um, and, and here's something that I have, like, mixed feelings about. My generation was terrified all the time. Um, we, we were terrified of the bomb. And now I married one of the people who who had the other side's bombs. And now she's an American citizen. So now she can get bombed by both sides, I suppose. Um, but we were just terrified of it all around the world, the entire world. And if you didn't grow up during the Cold War, you didn't know what it was like to be 16 years old and, and utterly convinced you're not going to live to 25. There was no future. It wasn't going to happen. I remember when when it was, it was either right at the right before the end of the Soviet Union or immediately after, but it was early, early 90s, when somebody made an announcement that, that uh, Russia was no longer targeting American cities. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. I mean, you know, they're just coordinates. You put them in in, in no time. But I remember the symbolic uh, nature of that. I was like, they're what? Yeah, they're, they're not targeting our, our cities anymore. Well, that's kind of nice. And then it just sort of went away. It just went away. Um, and, you know, what was it, 25,000 hydrogen weapons on, on both sides? 50,000 hydrogen weapons? We're down to, what, hundreds now, I think. And that was something to worry about. But this thing is not based on anything other than, you know, 
um, guys on TV. And everybody's repeating the same thing because that's what you're supposed to say. That's what you're supposed to say. Uh, it, it, it all came out of the, you know, that, that, that line is a, it's a great line, aphorism about how um, these people are watermelons are green on the outside, red on the inside. That's really it. Uh, but the thing I noticed the most watching those, you know, those teenagers was um, the fact that they're living in a state of perpetual fear. And that led me to something else. Uh, and that is, um, how come everybody's always living under a state of perpetual fear? Doesn't, doesn't that strike you as pretty convenient that, that there's always something in the world to be terrified of and that something has to be done about? Remember the ozone hole? Remember acid rain? Remember killer bees? Remember um, the population bomb? We're going to run out of magnesium. We're going to run out of oil. We're going to run out of water. We're going to run out of everything. And all of, uh, all of this stuff just didn't happen. Um, I've, I've been toying. I'm not really going to say this publicly. I know this is a public show, but we all know Stratosphere Lounge is kind of like the inside ball, ball game thing. But looking back on it, I'm beginning to think that once, that once the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, that nuclear war and therefore full-scale civilizational war became impossible after that point. Uh, I think I, I, I'm not sold on this yet, but the more I look at it, the more I come to believe that that both sides had to terrify the other, but that neither one of them was going to do it, even if the other one did. Apparently, uh, there's no question that Eisenhower basically said, no, if they nuke America, I'm not going to destroy the rest of the civilization. For what? And apparently, apparently, um, Reagan said that too. So if Reagan and Eisenhower, the two hawkish, most hawkish guys that we've had since, since the bomb, uh, both privately admitted that they're not going to um, do a full-scale retaliation, then that tells me that our side, at least anyway, was, was not going to launch those things. And then, as we've talked several times on the Stratosphere Lounge, then there's the, the Soviet side. And twice, twice, uh, Soviet officers, mid-level officers, well, lower-grade uh, general officers, colonels mostly, or colonels by and large, um, two times, both of them were, were convinced that they were under nuclear attack by the United States, and they didn't shoot back. Uh, it happened once in the um, Cuban Missile Crisis with a sub that we wanted to get to the surface. We just want to tell them that the blockade was over, so we dropped these test depth charges. They're little, but explosion of size of a hand grenade, just pop. But the Soviets didn't know that we had uh, test depth charges. They thought they were really being depth charged. They had one nuclear torpedo on board that sub. It needed the captain and the executive officer to agree. The captain and the executive officer did agree to launch that nuclear torpedo, but by happy, happy, happy chance, um, that that one submarine out of the three that were there also had the fleet commander, the sub squadron commander, and he said no. And it practically became a fist fight, but he said no. So they didn't launch the nuclear torpedo at the American destroyer in the middle of the most uh, tense standoff that we've seen in the nuclear age. And then 20 years later, 
there's a colonel and in, in, you know, he's, 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 he's manning the, the Soviet strategic missile base. And he gets, yes, uh, is it Arkhipov? Uh, Arkhipov uh, basically says, he, he's looking at his screen. He's seeing American warheads coming over the pole. This is what he is, is looking for. This is why he's got the job. This is why he's standing there. He sees the thing that everybody was afraid of, the thing that everybody feared, thing that everybody prayed would never happen. There it is. It's on all of his screens. Here come these nuclear weapons. And Arkhipov said, I'm not going to fire until that we have confirmation that these things hit. And obviously in nuclear war, a first strike is, that was the, the destabilizing aspect of the Cold War was the advantage was so monumentally in favor of whoever struck first that there was a lot of motivation to strike first. So he was willing apparently to lose all of the assets that would have been used in the uh, retaliation because he just didn't believe it. And so he didn't launch. And it turned out it was a software glitch. And uh, and the tragedy of Arkhipov was that um, <clears throat> he was court-martialed. It's a miracle he wasn't shot, actually. And he knew when he knew when he when he violated the direct standing order to not when he decided not to launch. He knew that it was probably going to be an ex uh, firing squad or almost certainly that or the Gulag, and um, he didn't get either. But he died in poverty and alone. Uh, his family left him because he was a traitor, you know. Every one of us on the planet owes our life to this guy. Uh, he deserved better than that, I think. But in any event, I just don't think it could have happened. So here we are with all these people scared to death again, and I'm not scared of this because I, I was scared of hydrogen bombs when <laughs> I was scared, I was scared. I wasn't scared of one and a half degrees centigrade. Uh, I was scared of three thousand degrees centigrade. That's what I was scared about, and um, and so you know, it's just it just constantly seems to be going on and on and on. Uh, that was all about Elon Musk in some way or another. Somebody can edit that down to about a minute and a half, and it makes sense. Uh, Joe Pomeroy, hey, good evening, Bill. Hey, Joe, how are you? I have a question about future work with any series or items you may be creating. If I happen to know a guy named Mo Sumroy who has 3080 graphics card, a kick-ass computer, and also spends many weeks away from his home for work, see more, would it be possible to donate that time on that card to you for rendering scenes or other graphics required for faster production? That's very kind. I'll just finish this up. I followed you since 2008 when you actually when you accurately displayed the problems of the Obama years. I only started subscribing after the 2020 election, and your membership drive, Mo's donated time, can be summed up as trying to repay those free years in kind. Just a thought. I'm sure you can find space in the market to teach young Americans how to make movies in Unreal 5. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for the kind offer, and uh, and and be sure to thank uh, Mo uh, Summerway for me. Um, one of the reasons this took so long was that the frames, the rendering was pretty slow by Unreal standards. And slow by Unreal standards means, I don't know, 10 seconds of frame maybe. Uh, when we were doing this in 3D Studio, we would sometimes be a four or five hour frame, one frame, 30 of those a second. 
So we don't need the rendering time. They have these render farms where they basically just buy pizza boxes. It's just a just a processor and uh, input and an output. And all the, the server just sends them and the things render them and they come back. They still cost five hours a frame, but now you've got 200 machines doing it. Um, in any event, uh, we, we don't have that problem. Um, the, the, the problem with volunteers is that it usually takes about as much time to, to train them uh, as it would to do it yourself. Um, having just done this monumental thing, which still needs a tiny little bit of work. Um, I mean, in that animation, I, I can't even begin really. I wrote the script, me and Bill Shakespeare uh, wrote the script, a lot of Shakespeare, direct Shakespeare in, in that script. So I wrote the script, um, I got Zoe to read his lines, I read my lines, I put them in every, I had to pick the environment, I had to find the right forest, I had to put people in there. I originally tried a different forest, an entirely different opening, I had to scratch all that, throw it away, and boom, that's gone. Uh, the advantage of, of working in Unreal is that you can make tremendous things like this in your own bedroom. The disadvantage is you have to make it in your own bedroom. And what that means is, is that you can't just say, okay, we're going to shoot this next scene because you have to place every single actor in there. You have to find animation that works for them. You have to time the animation. You have to, you have to splice animations together and do all of that stuff. You gotta put that there. Then you gotta get it lit and you gotta get it exposed. You gotta set the focus. You have a, a stock animation of somebody walking and their hand is like this, but he's holding a torch. So the hand needs to be like that. So you gotta go in there and take this little finger here and go uh, 40 degrees, 30 degrees, 30 degrees. Okay. And this one, 40 degrees, 30 degrees, 30 degrees. Okay. And then all of this, and, and pretty much every single one of the practically 200 shots in this thing requires that kind of level of work. So I had to do that. I had to pick the music. I had to, had to get the music in place. I had to uh, mix it, um, render it, keep track of all the files. Um, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm going through this martyr complex is because I don't want to be a martyr. I would much, 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 much rather not be doing all the things that I had to do in order to make this thing happen. Much, much, much rather. Um, not be doing it. Um, as I've said before, having done three series with uh, Daily Wire, um, it was not just a relief, it was a joy, a joy to be working with better editors than I ever was, better, certainly better uh, sound design guys, better everything, marketing guys, all of it. Uh, now, he's got 200 employees and I've got essentially, you know, one, but um, in any event, uh, it's it, it, the 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 first thing I would do is is uh, get um, get somebody to organize it. There's no reason. There, there's no point in getting a, a bunch of money and then having it all not all, but having most of it just evaporate as waste heat. Um, so so in an ideal world, uh, my wife occasionally says. Uh, that I, I just such a perfectionist and I, and I want to do everything myself. It's like, I am a perfectionist and I don't want to do it myself. I want somebody else to do it better than I could do it. When I see somebody doing, if I'm working on something, like I said, on Daily Wire and somebody does a better job than I could have done, I am delighted. I am overwhelmed uh, happy. Um, so, you know, we need that now. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, which is the enormous majority of, of the huge majority of you, um, 
the argument for the animation thing is not that you can do animation. The argument is the numbers. Um, and this is the final thing I have to do is put the final tax into the animation, but it's not the animation that's going to make the sale. It's the numbers. Uh, I did a, you know, it's not a thoroughly completely accurate statistical analysis, but it's good enough for what it is and it's clear what I'm doing. So, um, I took a look at the top five conservative commentary, commentary channels, and I totaled up their total views. Uh, Prager was a million and a half. I, I looked at their, I went to their page, their YouTube page, and I said, show me the last 20 videos based on posting the, the in terms of not, not your best sellers. What are the last 20 videos that you posted? So I took, I took a look at all these sites and I took a look at Prager. And when I did the, uh, took the snapshot, Prager had a million point, 1.4, 1.6 million views. Uh, Daily Wire had two and a half million views. Um, sorry, I got that wrong. I got that wrong. One and a half million views was The Blaze. Two and a half was Daily Wire. Uh, Prager got three or four. So those three together, the Daily Wire and all of their, all of the people in Daily Wire, Blaze, that includes Crowder and Glenn Beck and all the rest of them, Levin, and Prager. All of them together, which is, you know, uh, Candace Owens, all of them got about 8 million views on their last 20 videos. Total, not each. Aggregate total of 8 million views. And then to my surprise, the, the guy in the number two slot uh, was Mark Dice. Mark Dice got about 8 million himself. So Dice got about as many views as... Uh, the Blaze, Prager, and Daily Wire combined. And then I took a look at the number one conservative commentator in, in the, the world right now, by far, by far. Daily Wire gets two and a half million views. In the same number of videos, this guy got 22 million views. He literally gets 10 times the audience that he had. You ready for this? Who do you think it is? Is it, is it the ghost of Rush Limbaugh? Is it, is, no. It's, it's JP. It's Awaken with JP. It's a guy who does, who does conservative political commentary with purple hair or, or in a shredded lab coat. And, 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 and he got 22 million views compared to Dice's eight, Prager's five, Daily Wire's two and a half, and, and The Blaze's one, right? But you put all of those things together, all of them together, and what you find is it's about and if you take the top five conservative commentators and then you take the top five gaming channels, you find that if you, the total views, conservatives, all conservatives, the top five conservatives, they get about 4 to 4% of the total. They get about 4% of what gaming channels get, 4%. So you got a pie slice that's got 96% and then 4%. And inside that 4% is everything we do all of it. Daily Wire's in there. Uh, all of it. National, um, uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation, essentially all of it is there. It's all inside that little 4% wedge and nothing out there in the 96% wedge. And that would be catas uh, catastrophic regardless. But what's even more catastrophic is that one little wedge there is getting older. And the gigantic, enormous pie slice out there is young voters. And the reason I chose gaming is because these people can be 
converted. The reason you can convert them is because they spend their time running around, making money, buying weapons, shooting Nazis, and doing, you know, playing cowboys and Indians. That's what they want to do. So we can simply just go in there and, and poach them. But you can't poach them. The numbers show, it's not, it's not my opinion, the numbers show that you cannot get to these people by lecturing them because the left didn't lecture its way into controlling our culture. They entertained their way into it and we're gonna have to entertain our way out of it. And, and I don't know of anybody else who's doing this. But the reason I did, I went down this road and I mean all the way down this road, I am pot committed. I got, I, I, I don't just have skin in the game. I got all my skin in this game. Um, the, the reason that I went with this is because the kind of animation that, that we're doing is the visual language of that generation. They grew up with this. This is, this is what they have spent their time on. They, they didn't watch TV. They didn't even go to movies. These people that we're talking about who vote predominantly very left but behave very, very right, these people have done nothing but play video games or go to YouTube or Twitch and watch other people play video games. And so... If you're going to reach these people, you've got to have something that that speaks their language. That's why we have all of these monsters, right? I'm trying to talk about people who are who are uh, fatally open-minded, people who believe anything, people who believe, you know, socialism is wonderful. So I can either lecture somebody about it or I can show a mutant with his head split open and his brain showing. I know which one people will watch. And so that's the entire uh, thing. That's the that's the pitch. That's how it, that's how it works. Uh, but to answer your last question, Joe, um, I'm sure you can find a space in the market to teach young Americans how to make movies in Unreal 5. I am, I, I'm going to be launching a second channel. Um, I'm probably almost certainly going to call it Stratosphere Studio. And I am going to advertise as saying... Uh, I usually... Um, I usually um, mute that. Let me just uh, send a message here. Sorry, this is kind of an important call. Um, and when I talked to some people, in fact, the people who just rang me on the phone, um, and I said I was going to be teaching Unreal 5, then they, then they said, oh my God, all the kids are, all the kids want to spend time on, on Unreal. They're just all they do is play with Unreal. It's another data point that has me convinced, um, that, uh, this whole thing is the right way to go. I can't find it. Anyway, um, I'll have to call him back. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's it. Um, and so I, I, I look. There's one thing about this: our um, our views are continually being dialed down. We got we got ratcheted down again. If it was one video, that'd be one thing. But if you go from having every single right angle doing 11, 12,000 views, and then the next day they do three or four thousand views, the next day. It's not like they ramp down. It's like you're here and then you're here and then you build it up and then you're here. And so this alternative method also by, bypasses that filter. You can say it's not fair because it isn't fair. It's criminal. I think they should go to jail because they're violating their carrier uh, agreement. But nevertheless, with all that said, fair or not, legal or not, it's the way it is. And that's where the eyeballs are. So, um, so why don't we go where the eyeballs are? 
And, uh, and if we get the eyeballs from 16-year-olds uh, who want to learn how to make movies like the one I just showed these people, uh, then, okay, while I'm spending my two hours telling them how to keep frame uh, walking animations, uh, I could throw in a little bit about uh, some, you know, freedom stuff. And not, not like, lecture them about it. Just, you know, you got a guy who's going to be shooting a, a, a gun in your movie? Yep, you got the... Got the M4 asset, and I've got a sci-fi space trooper, and I want to have this guy fire. Okay. Well. First thing you got to do is understand the shooting stance, right? You want to lean into that thing, not lean back. See how it works, right? It's it's not me clubbing him, you know, like that with that. So um, there you go. Uh, anyway, thanks for uh, thanks for that uh, really cool question. Um, and thanks for the offer, Joe, uh, for the for the rendering. That's very very kind. In little second attempt. Well, by God, we're going to get this in two, Ian. Uh, hey, Bill, I'm a member of the under 40 wing of TSL. Thank you. You and three other people, I think. And I was wondering, as representatives from our respective generations, if we could declare a truce in the boomer millennial conflict, despite how off, how we're often portrayed, millennials have aged out of the kids these days, age bracketed, are now in our late 20s through early 40s. That's true. Maybe tempting to skip over our generation and try to reach the new generation of youngsters, the Zoomers. Um, but as a numerically large generation, millennial votes are going to be important for the right to win for the foreseeable future. Absolutely, that's the next cohort that's going to be voting for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, what's the best way to reach this generation of people? Uh, though many of us did grow up spoiled, have been out in the world for quite some time now and are navigating careers, relationships, starting families, and caring for aging parents. I think if you wanted to reach millennials, I would probably think about finding some way to do messaging using computer animation. That's what I would do. Uh, I hope, uh, Ian, that it doesn't sound flip, but honestly, the answer to your question is what I just spent the last, uh, honestly, hour uh, talking about. Get entertain yourself into their consciousness, entertain yourself into their value system. And if you can't do that, then you're going to lose. Uh, hope that hope that covered it. Um, Leanne Whittle-Luther. Well, now, how about that? That's not a name you see very often. Um, coming to Vegas 814 and 819, hope we can see you at the Stratosphere. I, oh, I'm sorry, I hope... I hope you don't think, uh, maybe there's some confusion. There is a stratosphere in Vegas, but we don't broadcast from there. I just like the word stratosphere. We're in Los Angeles. Um, hope we can see you at the stratosphere. Uh, I originally friended you because my dad was Bill Whittle and a pilot in the Navy, comforting to see your name pop up on my feed. Uh, Leanne, I would like, I had no idea that that, that, that your dad uh, was that had that name or was a pilot, but I would like to know everything about a guy whose name was Bill Whittle and a pilot in the Navy. I would like to know everything about that person. Um, I don't know if he's still with us. I sure hope he is. Um, and if, you, um, if you're able to, you can contact me at info at billwhittle.com and just say you're the person in the stretch free lunch who has a father named Bill Whittle who is a Navy pilot. And um, that's really interesting. I wonder if he spent his time in the Navy sitting there on the deck wishing he could be a political commentator. I bet he didn't. Uh, that's a, kind of a one-way street, I think. Um, 
so that's great news, Leanne Wittel-Luter, and, and uh, thank you for, for uh, joining us here. Um, okay, so uh, Eric Blake, Hail Vectron, uh, Bill Whittle, Hail Vectron, uh, Eric. By Vectron's golden claw, may the many battlefields of the culture from Twitter to Google to Disney itself be all victories in the cause of moving back to America. All right. Now, how do you read the tea leaves about California right now? Do you see the upcoming gubernatorial election finally getting rid of Mr. French Laundry, getting him out of office? Larry Elder isn't running again, sadly, but do you see anyone in the running who can beat the machine? Considering how Brandon's approval ratings are now low, even in California, I wonder if there could be some hope at last that people will stop um, berating you to move out. I'd sure like to be ha to be sure I'd be happy to find you as a neighbor, but I personally prefer to be in California than Florida, as would I. Um, I no, I don't think I don't think anybody's going to beat Gavin Newsom uh, in November. Um, I thought, I thought, look, if, if, if he wasn't thrown out of office after, like, right in the middle of what he was doing to everybody's lives uh, in the middle of COVID while he's going out to the French Laundry without a mask, I thought, what else do you need to see? Um, since he won that, um, uh, since he survived the recall election, uh, I don't see any chance that he's going to uh, lose the general election. Um, California is populated with people who, uh, who are so invested. Part of it has to do with being just in California. So much of modern progressivism is just remission of guilt, right? I don't want to give up all this nice stuff I have, but I want to sound like I would, you know. I, I want to be down with the, you know, with the masses, that kind of thing. So all of these, um, just living in California, you kind of feel a little bit, you know, you know, privileged, air-conditioned outdoors. Um, and, and so we have a higher, much higher than average number of people who feel guilty about uh, their lives which is a problem I've never had actually, not about my lifestyle anyway. I've done some things I feel guilty about, but I've never done, I've never felt guilty about my lifestyle. And frankly, guilt and envy is what powers this whole thing, right? I, I, wanna, uh, I wanna vote for, um, you know, I wanna, I wanna give my money to BLM, even if it's gonna be my store they burn down. See how that works? It's better for them to have their store burned down and also collect the insurance money than it is for them to be seen as not good people. And good people write checks to Black Lives Matter. And bad people don't. And so it's not, it's, it's, it's just, look, it's, it's, a, it's fundamentally, um, uh, it's a fundamentally, an, it's, not a, it's not an intelligence problem, it's an ignorance problem. Ronald Reagan got it in one, you know, he said, it's not that our liberal friends are stupid. It's just that so much of what they know just isn't true, um, and so, and so you 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 know the you have to not only do you have to get them information they didn't have, but you got to get them out of their trenches, and that's the hard part is getting them out of their trenches. They don't they they will not listen. If you try to tell them something about you know something irrefutable, irrefutable. Uh, Scott, I was playing with something and I just put it down. Um, irrefutable. Here's something irrefutable. They're 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 Claiming the world's going to die if we get to 450 parts per million CO2. 80 million years ago, it was 3,000 parts per million. Now, it's true, all the oceans 
were much higher because the polar caps had melted, but that was 80 million years ago, 80,000 years ago. We were down damn near to the point where probably 100, 120, 150 parts per million, and you get much lower than that, then plants die. Um, and then your feedback mechanism goes down. So we, so, so Earth, Earth, Kansas, Kansas, the center of the United States, it was, a, was an inland ocean and was filled with ferns and thousands and thousands of different species of animals and they're all flying around and the dinosaurs are walking through the ponds and the pterodactyls are overhead and there's fish in the ocean and everything's warm and happy and the T-Rexes are running around with little babies doing all this kind of stuff. And now, if they could see their environment now, here in the future, in the in the present, at our 450 parts per million that we must preserve at all costs, they would just see an ocean of grass. They'd see a, essentially a dried up lake bed, and they'd say, "My God, it's a catastrophe." At what point did did the Earth get below 2,000, 1,000 parts per million in CO2? That's four times. Well, 3,000 parts per million is is nearly it's eight times, right? It's eight times what they tell us is going to kill the planet. And no, and none of them will dispute this, none of them. And none of them will ever, ever, ever dispute it. That's why you'll occasionally hear them say things like, it hasn't been this hot uh, since, you know, for four million years. Okay, well, the Earth is four and a half billion years old, so that's about one one-thousandth of the total lifespan of the Earth. You're telling me that the last time it was this hot was one one-thousandth of the Earth's lifetime ago, and this is a catastrophe we have? Come on, you know? Come on, come on. This is, this is not, see, this is the kind of arguments that I like to make. This is the kind of place I like to live because these things are not opinions. They are not up for discussion in terms of whether or not it's true. Every single one of these left-wingers, every single one of the scientists, climate scientists, all of them will, be, will admit if you ask them and then force them to that there were 3,000 parts per million carbon dioxide in, in 80 million years ago and everything was fine. It was different. But it was fine. Now, if you want to make the case that we don't want the center of the United States flooded, then you could say, all right, maybe we don't want to get to 3,000 parts per million. Maybe we want to stop around. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So none of this stuff gets through. And it doesn't get through not because the people who you need to get it to don't understand it. It's that they will not, they will not listen to it. They will not. So... Um, I think that's the problem. And again, the reason that they won't listen is because if you come at them as a conservative with a lecture, you're basically starting the, this uh, process by saying, I'm about to prove everything you believe is wrong and all of your friends are wrong. And if you decide that you're going to listen carefully to this and change your mind, then you won't have any friends anymore and Rush Limbaugh and Donald Trump and so on and so on and so on. So therefore, they're not going to they're not going to change. You got to get past that um, filter, that barricade, really. Uh, let's see. Those were the most uh, relevant comments. Let's see, what we got and then we have the other poster, too. All comments. Just trying to see. We got most of these, I think. So we got all of them. Nope. Uh, Jared Bryant. Um, hello, Bill. Hello, Jared Bryant. Are you familiar with the series of books William Shakespeare's Star Wars by Ian Dosher? I am not, but I am going to get that as soon as I turn this camera off. 
he turned all, oh my god he turned all nine of the shake of the star wars films into shakespeare plays and while that might sound like it would be just a hokey gag they are actually really well done and quite authentic to the smallest detail with wit charm even adding extra philosophical depth to the stories one of my favorite aspects is how r2d2 is handled here's an example here's a sample from <laughs> from verily a new hope Oh my God, this is already genius. So here's, here's, uh, here's Shakespeare's take on R2-D2. Around both humans and the droids, I must be seen to make such errant beeps and squeaks that they shall think me simple. Truly, though, although with sounds oblique I speak to them, I can clearly see how I shall play my part and how vast a rebellion shall succeed by wit and wisdom of a simple droid. And this from Han Solo. Uh, Pray, goodly sir, forgive me for the mess. Uh, whether I shot first, I'll ne'er confess. That's bloody brilliant. Um, the uh, this giant project that I that I've been working on is written by Bill Whittle and William Shakespeare. That's based on word count, and I think. I think uh, the other bill probably did about 40, 45% of it. Much of that dialogue is lifted directly from Shakespeare's plays. I just got to, if you pull Shakespeare quotes, there's about a thousand of them. And the number of words he invented, like bedroom, that kind of thing. Anyway, um, but, the, but the thing I was proud of with the script is I don't think many people could tell where the Shakespeare starts and ends, and so I had to stitch together existing Shakespearean lines. I'd look, 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 and I'd say that that could apply to Nancy Pelosi, let's say, or that could apply to, you know, to AOC or whatever, and then I'd just copy and paste that, put it aside, and then I had my basic story set out, and then I would plug in the Shakespeare everywhere I could, and then I would, um, then I would just kind of stitch it together, but I had to make it sound like, um, take it out. Excuse me one second. Oh, there she is, there she is. Hey, there, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, it's, my life is much better than it used to be. Uh, okay, so, um, well, it's easy to lose track of your mind. I don't know these guys, these guys. Oh, oh, Shakespeare. Uh, so, I read all of the plays, I think, just about all of them. And when you the reason that this guy, Ian Dosher, he's got to be a good writer to do that because the thing you quoted is brilliant. It's brilliant, brilliant. But after you read enough Shakespeare, you start to pick up the cadences and the, and the language. And it's just better language. I mean, it's just better. Uh, it's so... Um, thank you for, 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 the, for the kind words about blending the two together. Um, but once you, if you've got an ear for dialogue... Once you read enough Shakespeare, you start finding yourself thinking in Shakespearean terms, and um, and and not just the language, but just everything. Everything um, is just so universal and so clever. Um, I'm trying to think of a, one example that would come to mind 
I, I, I mostly I wrote down insults and and things like that because that's something I could bandy about. He's got an insult. He says, "Would that would that thou were clean enough to spit upon." Pretty good. Uh, and some of the lines that are directly in there, you know, um, bootless boil bottom blackguards, are you? Um, do you? Uh, something something dog hearted miscreant that kind of thing. Uh, you have to look a little bit for it, but there's something out there called the Shakespeare Insult Generator. Just type that in on uh, YouTube. I mean, on um, on uh, Google. And um, okay, uh, and you will find um, you'll push a button, and it will generate amazing insults. Amazing. Oh, I've, my, my favorite one, and the one that that, that I used is. Um, this is verbatim. The devil damn thee, black thou elf-skinned, cream-faced loon. Where gots thou that goose look? Devil damn thee, black thou elf-skinned, cream-faced loon. See, that's how you swear at somebody. You don't say that effing guy. You, you know, F you, you know. You say, F you. The devil damn thee, black thou elf-skinned, cream-faced loon. Sweet. Um, uh, Eric Blake says, Ben Crystal and his Shakespeare on Toast channel has been so beneficial to me in my use of Shakespeare. I didn't know he had a channel. Ben Crystal is one of my um, one of my idols. He's uh, his father, and he pretty much, not, not single-handedly, obviously, but they certainly did an awful lot of the heavy lifting and and are certainly running with the ball. Um, uh, Crystal and his dad spent an awful lot of time and effort trying to get to uh, Shakespeare's original pronunciation. Uh, this, this kind of, to be or not to be, that is the question. Nothing like that. Uh, the, um, I did show him doing Hamlet soliloquy. Uh, and and since Ben's an actor, he can address the difference between original pronunciation. The British accent that you know, the, 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 the accent that the Queen speaks with, is called received pronunciation. And it was invented in late Victorian times, I think. Specifically, it was, it, nobody spoke that way. It was like somebody, it was almost like somebody was going to say, hey, we're going to speak with a Klingon accent or something. You just invented it. All of this, all of it is new. Shakespeare wrote in a language that sounds much, much more like American than, than what you think of when you think of a, uh, a Shakespearean British actor like Laurence Olivier. Um, one of the things I want to do on the second channel is, uh, is I just like to do this kind of thing. Um, there, I've seen them all. Um, it is, uh, it is, um, Mark Antony's speech from Julius Caesar, where he, I, I come not to praise Caesar, but to bury him, that speech. And I've got, when I say I've got, I've seen on YouTube, I've seen Gilgood do it, uh, Laurence Olivier do it, Charlton Heston do it, Marlon Brando do it, and then somebody, oh, uh, the actor who plays, um, who played Winters in uh, 
um, band of brothers. And if you look at these things in, in order, they're reading the exact same dialogue. Um, if you look at them in order, you can see how acting has just gotten better, much better. And the reason for that is because uh, Damien Lewis. Damien Lewis's version of that is mind-boggling. And the reason that Damien Lewis's version is so good is because Damien Lewis is is reading it like he's talking right to... I'm going to find it. You know, what the hell? I don't... I copyright claims, I don't care. Hang on. It's worth it's worth a show, um, and it's and it's short. Uh, so, so what Damian Lewis and what Ben Crystal are doing with Shakespeare is they're reading, they're, they're they're acting it in a modern fashion, and what you get is, this is how it was written. All of this artifice when people oh Shakespeare oh I can't listen to Shakespeare can't understand Shakespeare it's because the Shakespeare you know is this toffee nosed you know, effeminate, Brit with received pronunciation when you look at he was writing for regular people who were who were constantly talking throwing food on stage the groundlings down there on the ground if it rained it rained on everybody he was talking to them he was talking to common people about very uncommon things which is why he's the undisputed master so when you get into this kind of John Gilgood, Lawrence Olivier reading, it sounds extremely artificial, and so many people who are exposed to that think, oh, Shakespeare is very artificial. He's not. He's not at all. It's just that he's been, he's just been portrayed that way. So hang on a minute. Yeah, this is, this is worth the wait. I, I, I want to see it again. Yeah, that's great. Two minutes, 23 seconds. Freaking great. And here are all of them are all on the same page. Uh, let me uh, go ahead and um, I'll download this, and then we'll we'll all watch it together. Uh, because it because the writing deserves it. It's just brilliant. This particular speech, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Is not just beautiful language, although it certainly is that. When you when you hear Damian Lewis do it as you're about to, you'll realize what Mark Antony is doing. Because it's so much more realistic than the other versions, it becomes very clear. Because he's right here. He's right in front of your face talking right to you. Very clear what Brutus is doing and how he's doing it. Um, I'm sorry, uh, how uh, uh, Antony was doing it. And the reason that acting has gotten so much better, folks, is real simple. It's real simple. Acting suddenly became better when movies started to come along, and then when modern film language came along, the big close-up, that's when people started to learn how to act, when the big close-up became uh, fashionable. You look at, you look at, even look at a relatively modern movie like Bonnie and Clyde or something, certainly anything from the 40s, you never see any close-ups. It's wide shot, and then a slightly less wide shot, and they're back and forth. They're, they're still so close to the stage that they don't, that they can't break away from the stage as, um, uh, you know, as, as uh, writers and directors and actors. So, um, so once you could get the camera close enough, see, when you're acting on stage, you've got to, this is what they told us in the theater department, when you're acting on stage, you've got to make it what you're doing clear to somebody in row 80, right? And that means much broader. 
expressions and much, much more dynamic speaking because you've got to speak louder and you have to convey emotion over a large distance. And that's why when you watch theatrical actors acting, it sounds good from the audience, but if you watch it up close, as you're doing right now, it just seems ridiculous. So here, here's the words, same words, uh, spoken by a very, 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 very good naturalistic actor. And give me a second to, I said mute the audio earlier. I, let me try mute the audio because I'd like to listen to myself. Here, oh, stay right here. Here we go. Ready? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honourable man, so are they all, all honourable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend. Faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honourable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says... He was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he is an honourable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once, not without cause. What cause withhold you then to mourn for him? O oh, judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar, and I must pause till it come back to me. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Anybody have any trouble understanding that? Because I didn't. I, I got the whole message and um, and I got when I first saw this Damien Lewis's read I first I first realized what Shakespeare was actually saying and how he was saying it I'd heard the speech a hundred times before most of us have anyway but the reason that this one got through to me is because it was delivered in such a naturalistic style this is what Ben Crystal does is answering the question in a roundabout way hopefully he, he gets to 
this is what this is what Shakespeare sounded like when Shakespeare was on stage. This is what it sounded like, and this is what it looked like. It wasn't it wasn't this, you know, the, you know, Laurence Olivier's platinum blonde Hamlet, you know, oh, you know, posing on the cliffs, you know, in the winter, and it's Denmark, and oh, and 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 then pause for like forty seconds. Oh, that is the question. Piss off. It, it 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 cheats people, and when you watch somebody like that do that speech, it's tremendous. Um, I'm wondering if I should uh, probably shouldn't uh, take too long to find out what the dead air. But uh, the if, if you get a chance, look up uh, on YouTube Ben Crystal Hamlet soliloquy, and you know what? I changed my mind. I'm just been living with Shakespeare an awful lot lately, and so I'm gonna, gonna play it. Hang on while I find it, uh, because it is, uh, it is worth it. It's kind of what you get here. Doomcock show, he'll, you'll, you'll hear him sing the theme from Super Chicken, or have him do John Wayne impressions, which is hilarious and fun, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting there with him. But here you may occasionally get your shot of Shakespeare, uh, Just, just so I can hammer this point into the ground for those of you who, um, who uh, aren't quite on board yet. So, what you're about to see here is another uh, Shakespearean soliloquy, which you've heard a hundred times and never really understood because it's been delivered to you in a, in a way that is foreign to not just to how people talk, but how they think. And the thing I like most about this one is, as as with the Damien Lewis thing. Is that, is that he's not, see, see, Olivier is doing it for the theater, but Olivier is doing it for a big theater, thousands and thousands of people. When Shakespeare wrote this stuff, these actors would get down on the, on the absolute edge of the stage and they'd interact with the audience. The audience loved it, you know, they would just, just roared and they'd throw beer and they'd boo and cheer and, and, and all this other stuff. But when you hear this most famous of Shakespeare's soliloquies, when you hear it spoken, instead of acted, when you hear it spoken, you see that to be or not to be, that is the question. It's not a rhetorical question. The way that Olivier and, and the rest of these classical actors portray it, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. To be or not to be, that is the question. Hamlet already knows the answer, according to, to them. But when, you, but when you hear Ben Crystal say it, you realize that what, what Hamlet is, Hamlet is asking the audience for their opinion, right? He's asking, he's asking the people who are in the theater. Hamlet is walking to the edge of the stage and he's saying, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? Should I do this or should I do that? And again, you don't get that until you hear it in a way that sounds like normal people speaking. So uh, here we go. Uh, this, is, um, this is Ben Crystal doing uh, the famous soliloquy from uh, Hamlet. Are you ready? And just take your time, Ben. Um, Hamlet, take two. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is 
nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sad troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to slay, no more, and by a slave to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation to fountain to be washed. To die, to slip, to slip her chance to dream, aye, there's the rope. For in that slip of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity a so long life, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the poor man's continually, the pangs of disprised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his coatus make with a bare bodkin. Who would these fathers bear to grunt and sweat in her weary life? But that the threat of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cords of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard. Their currents turn awry, and loose the name of Axel. It's after you now the Ferrovelian. Aha. Now, that accent sounded um, a little different, but what Ben is doing there is not just doing it naturally, he's also, this is, this is the accent that Shakespeare spoke with and that his audience spoke with. That's how Queen Elizabeth spoke all of them. And the way they know this is because Shakespeare would write things that, that rhyme in original pronunciation, but they don't rhyme in, in uh, received pronunciation because there was the great vowel shift in English changed the way it sounds and so on. But, but nevertheless, um, what 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 he I mean what's this whole thing about? It's basically Hamlet basically saying I would kill myself except I'm worried about going to hell, you know, to be or not to be. That is a question. Why would somebody stay and endure all of these things, the slings and arrows? Then he lists them all, you know, all the things that, that make your life miserable. You could just take a a bare bodkin. A bodkin is a armor piercing arrow tip. His quietus make with the bare bodkin. Why go through all of this crap? Why don't you just take an arrowhead and just ram it into your, your heart? And, and it's over. You don't have to worry anymore. Just sleep. Uh, but if you sleep, you might dream. And if you dream, maybe there are nightmares. And maybe death is nothing but an ongoing nightmare. And so I'm not going to take the chance. Um, I'm not going to risk it. Not only, not only is that a really profoundly deep question to ask, especially in Shakespeare's time, because the English theater didn't exist 10 years, 20 years before Shakespeare. It wasn't just Shakespeare, but all these guys got together, Green and, and, um, and uh, Bacon was there and, and a couple of others. They all just basically said we can do better. All they had prior to this, to, to 10 years before Shakespeare, all they had were these kind of religious pantomimes and skits that would go from town to town. These guys invented theater. 
and um, and to sit there with all these people. And by the way, by the way, it doesn't hurt to remember that when he's at when he's talking to the people in the audience about whether they should be or not be, and all of the all of the slings and arrows of life, all the things that make life difficult. Let's not forget that the people who were in the theater had to just tromp through mud and filth and, and stuff. The, the, the theaters would close for seven, eight months every two or three years because bubonic plague would come in and kill 20%, 30% of the population. You know, you had no indoor heating. You had no, you had a fireplace, but you also had thatched roofs. That doesn't work out so well. You know, no medicine, nothing. Sewage is taken out in the morning and dumped in the street. When you wake up in the morning, you want to wash your face. The first thing you have to do is go over to the bucket and smash the ice that's formed on the uh, on the uh, bowl of water, because that's how cold your bedroom is. And so when he's talking about why don't you just pitch it, you know, just get it over, with, just end it. He's talking to people who have a lot of good reasons. It's not it's not people whose biggest problem in life is that their their net speed downloads are you know not not as fast as they would want. Anyway. Uh, that's what happens when you ask me a question about Shakespeare and Star Wars, my two favorite things. You know what would be fun? It would be fun. It would be fun. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, hang on, let me just screen grab this. Uh, it would be really fun to figure out a way to do one of those plays with Doomcock. Would that be awesome? Hire a bunch of actors and then, and then play out, uh, play out uh, Star Wars as written by William Shakespeare. I think that would just be cool. You wouldn't want to do the whole play, obviously, but just these key selections. It's just its just wonderful. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, bodkin was a word that you could also apply to a lot of knives that you might also call a stiletto or even an ice pick. I did not know that because that makes more sense than an arrowhead. Um, so there's that. Uh, let's see here. Joe Pomeroy, good evening, Bill. Hey, Joe. Uh, I have a question about future work. Oh, I'm sorry. I, these are, I already got to these. Uh, so let's do this. Let's just stay with Facebook today. And I I know I already owe my members, but I owe them so much anyway. So let me um, see if there's any other questions from yesterday's post, and then we'll call it a day because I've been working a lot. I mean, a lot. Only one? Huh. Looks like the same. Uh, oh, sorry, it's most relevant. Nope, that's about it. Okay, you know, um, I think I can feel myself getting a little croaky, and I am certainly tired. Uh, so, um, sorry, Eric. I'm just going to have to post it next time. Um, I have not seen the uh, Dunecock interview. Looking forward to doing that. Uh, I got to get this thing out the door, and uh, and um, what about last week's post? So I'm not gonna I, I'm put them in next week's post. I'm sorry, I'm doing the best I can. Um, I've had many people say you should make this um, make the answer shorter and get to more of them, and and when I try that, uh, I find that it's just a you know. What do you think about this? And I think this, this, and this next. I don't know. Um, in any event, uh, I think 
I think that's it. I've still got the virtue signals uh, to, to edit and stuff that we shot today with Zoe. Um, the one we did today with um, about this assassination attempt against Kavanaugh, and that's horrifying. But the they did a survey and asked, "Do you?" Th the the question was essentially almost verbatim. Would you be in favor of assassinating a politician if you thought he was harming the country or the democracy? 44% of Democratic young men said yes, they would be in favor of assassinating a politician because they thought that they were harming the country. Older Republicans and older Democrats, the number's around 6%. That's still much higher than I thought it would be. But even Republican young Republican men, one in three, agrees with that statement. Yeah, we, we, if somebody does something we think is bad for the country, we should just kill them. You know? Just kill them. I think Barack Obama is the worst thing that happened in this country. Without Obama, you don't get any of this stuff. But I would never, ever, even occur to me to think, yeah, we should just kill them. You know? So we did... Um, we did a, a whole segment on on that and uh, and in that segment uh, I said for the first time and stay with this one for a while too the most evil sentence in the English language and I'm convinced of this I become more convinced every day the most evil sentence ever written in English is the ends justifies the means um, The ends justifies the means is your double O rating, right? It's your license to kill. If, if you can say that the ends justifies the means, you can do anything you want to. Because you can claim it's for a greater good, and maybe you even believe it. But the fact is, it has not arrived yet. You have to, you have to do this damage in order to get to this greater good, which may or may not come, and, and doesn't come, ever. The ends justifies the means is the, is the most evil uh, sentence in, in human history because it makes sense. Um, but it's, it, see, this is the thing. This is the thing. It, 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 it and, and again, movies, right? Star Trek, Wrath of Khan, ongoing theme is the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And that seems to make sense, right? If, you, if, you can, if you've got 10,000 people suffering and you can take care of them at the expense of 1,000 people suffering, then that's 9,000 people who aren't suffering. But the problem with that is that if you, if you go with that ends justifies the means thing, then you're constantly killing people in order to get to a place you want to get to. If, on the other hand, you make every single individual sacred, sacrosanct, protected by rights, every single individual, then the collective will be fine, right? If every single individual person is protected by you know, constitutional rights, guns, whatever the case may be, then your whole society will be fine. But if you say that, no, we're going to kill these people because that'll make a better society, then you're then you're doomed. That's, that's how you get 100 million dead people through socialism. Uh, and um, 
And the beauty of that is uh, the um, this society of ours, generally speaking, is based on the opposite. The needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. How, how else do you explain the Coast Guard? Right? How else do you explain? How, how, in, in Ukraine, Russian soldiers are just being left dead where they fell. And in some cases, reports are consistently coming out that officers just shot their own walking wounded, or, or wounded who couldn't walk, rather. And we look at this and we think it's barbaric. We don't leave our dead behind. If there's a way to go get them, we'll get them. So in a rescue mission, let's say a pilot is shot down, right? So you've lost, you've lost one aircraft and you lost one pilot. In this country and in this culture, we will then prepare to send 50 people and 10 aircraft to get that one guy back. And that doesn't make any sense at all. None. It makes no sense whatsoever. Except for the fact that while the numbers and the math and all the rest of it is very clear, we're not going to, why would we risk 50 people who might all die in order to save this one guy? It just doesn't make any sense. If you do, if you do, then the morale of everybody in your, not, in, not just in your armed forces, but in your entire culture, you will have a society based on trust and confidence and you'll be a much happier person. The thing I said to Natasha after she got her, um, she, she got sworn in, uh, she was just beaming and so was I. We worked really hard for that. It took five years, a little more, to get it done. Um, and when she, the, the instant she was finished for, with the ceremony, she came over and, um, and I hugged her and gave her a big kiss. And the first things out of my mouth were, honey, if you ever get in trouble overseas, we will send aircraft carriers to come and get you. Um, now, that used to be true. Uh, not quite as true these days, but that can change. Um, so, yeah, and somebody in the comment section has been talking about um, Putin. Uh, British intelligence thought he, he may have been killed already. I don't know if he's appeared since then or not. But look, every single day that goes by that the, that the war is not over is just another day that Putin's failed. And it's been four months now. And not only are the Russians not on the verge of succeeding, it looks like they're getting pushed back pretty hard. Um, uh, so, uh, well, that's a good enough and easy to understand question. Eric's question was... Um, Betting pools say we're absolutely going to win both houses of Congress in November. I think so, too. But by how many seats do you see us getting enough wins to overturn Biden votes? It, the, the betting pool doesn't specify seats, although if you were able to make a bet on the number of seats, and I have, have no doubt that you can, I think the, you know, uh, the, the bookmakers in Vegas will take a bet on anything. I'm sure if you had people betting on how many seats were taken, you'd end up with a number that is pretty much exactly the number it's going to be. But we don't have that information. At least I don't. Um, but um, you, I don't know what we need. I don't, I don't know. Somebody out here will know. Uh, if it is mathematically possible for us to have veto-proof majorities, a veto-proof majority in the Senate because the House flushes every two years. You can get rid of the entire House every two years. Every single one of them can go. 
So you can certainly, at any given time, any given two-year election, you can have a House that is 100% Republican or Democrat, whatever the case may be. So the question is the Senate. Um, in a really big red wave, would there be enough seats gained and lost uh, to override Biden's veto? Because if there is, then all of a sudden uh, the president is powerless, just like the guy who's claiming to be president now is powerless. No, it's not. It is. It is apparently not mathematically possible, says Dave Big Booty or Big Boutte, I should say. Um, we will, I'm sure, have majorities and significant majorities in both of them. Um, but uh, okay. Um, nevertheless, I have a question that I don't know the answer to. So we're talking about is there a is there a enough of a majority in the Senate or the House to override the president's veto? It's a two-third vote, right? Passes with passes with a simple majority legislation, but uh, if it's vetoed by the president, it goes back if they want to take it back, and then it has to pass by two-thirds. What happens? What happens on an impeachment vote? I, I, I'm sure this is a simple question. I just don't know the answer to it. Can the president not veto legislation impeaching him? And and if so, because that obviously seems to be the case, then where does that carve out exist, and how wide is it? If the president, if if you have, I I suppose it's I suppose the answer is that a, a impeachment is not legislation. Um, that'd be kind of cool if it was though. Uh, anyway. Um, I think the first thing we do, the first thing we do is um, we, yeah, I, I, everybody's saying I got it right now. Um, I think the first thing we do with big majority is we immediately impeach Joe Biden. Joe Biden. You want, you guys want to play this game with us? All right, we'll play this game with you too. And you know what? You've, um, you've launched impeachment proceedings against Trump twice. I think we should launch impeachment proceedings five times against Joe Biden. You you're gonna you, you have destroyed a safeguard in the system, and it's broken, and we're not going to continue to play by rules that you don't play by. And for those people who say that we should, I will leave you with this. Um, I did we talk about this in the last rest of your lunch? I think. Um, Behavior towards other people is mod. Is, there's a lot of, of thought experiments and, and, and game theory that get to the heart of certain issues. The tragedy of the commons is one, and the prisoner's dilemma is another. Basically, um, the prisoner's dilemma is if you if you don't rat out the other guy, these two prisoners held in separate rooms, they can't talk to each other. They they both are guilty, and the deal is if you rat the other guy out we'll send you free and if you don't then the consequences are not getting all the details but basically what it comes down to is when you run that game the winning the winning move is to rat the other guy out is to not is to not trust him you you cannot trust him because the consequences of him ratting you out and you not ratting him out are are so appalling that the smart play is to rat the guy out but 
when you play the game called the reiterated prisoner's dilemma where you have a reputation and that reputation means you can build trust then the strategy is no longer um screw the other guy now the strategy becomes tit for tat trust somebody trust them if they screw you and you continue to trust them they will continue to screw you and you will be underwater so start out with trust if somebody screws you, you got to screw them back and you got to keep hitting them back until they stop hitting you. And once they stop hitting you, you have to stop hitting them. And when that is in place, then that becomes the best. Uh, that becomes the best strategy is tit for tat. That's that's it. We're going to do you. You've ruined this impeachment thing, made it a, a, a joke. OK, that's a hit against uh, the the republic that we conservatives are trying to conserve so now we're going to hit you back we're going to impeach your guy 17 times okay and we're going to keep doing this until we both decide um on uh on whether we want to live in a civil society or whether we want to keep punching each other in the face because it's much better to not punch each other in the face but the worst outcome is to get punched in the face without punching back that's what guarantees you more punching so you know it's all, uh, it's all, it's all there. I'm just cooked. I just have enough brain cells left now to uh, convert some video files and do some thumbnails and get those things uploaded. I still have hours and hours of work to do on this thing. Uh, but the picture frame in this case is better than the picture. Um, So we'll see how that turns out. All right, um, that'll do it for uh, this edition of the Stratosphere Lounge made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com. Um, and uh, it's always good to see you guys out there. And um, I got a bunch of things to go and look at and do and things like that. Uh, so we'll see you uh, probably next Thursday. Oh, wait a minute. Next Wednesday, the uh, asteroid impact on my upper lip takes place. So I'll either have a big Band-Aid on or I'll call a, uh, an audible, but that surgery's on Wednesday. I've put it off. I've, I've postponed it three times now, three times already. So um, as long as it got some kind of bandage over it, because uh, when there's no bandage on it, it looks like it's just horrifying. Um, or I could do the show as the astronaut. That's that's actually my plan. Um, okay, so um, that'll do it. I'm expecting to be here next week. Uh, who knows? But that's that's the plan. Uh, okay, so you guys uh, have fun out there. Keep the freedom rolling, and um, and we'll see you next time here on the Stratosphere Lounge. <laughs>